Due to a brief technical malfunction, the beginning of the sermon is missing from the recording. How that happened, how their faith evaporated. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. How did it happen? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You see, deep grief and trauma, the kind that hits us in wave after wave, it can break us and push us into unbelief. It can push us into a place where what you say about God doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't actually help me. Now, remember, the book of Exodus started back in chapter 1, some 400 years before this moment. It started when the Israelites came to Egypt. And at the time they came to Egypt, they were pretty small in number. There were 70 of them. And they came as refugees during a famine. And their understanding of God, this is so important for the book. When the book of Exodus opens, the Israelites, their understanding of God was based entirely on the testimony of their great-great-grandfather. We have no record of the Israelites having an encounter with God. This book that is about knowing God starts conspicuously with the people of God not having experienced him in a firsthand kind of way for generations. Now, they still have faith at the beginning. It seems they know something of God, but their knowledge of God and their faith in God is a received faith. It's based on the testimony of their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. It's based on these stories that they've been told since they were little, that your great-grandfather, Abraham, had these remarkable experiences with God. And God gave him these promises that are even for his great-grandchildren. That, that's where it starts. Their faith in God was based on third-hand testimony. It was based on these amazing encounters and these promises that had been given to a great-grandfather. And when they got to Egypt, all that stuff their great-grandfather had said, all those promises, they were coming true. So it was easy to believe in it. God said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take you down into Egypt, but I'm going to protect you, and you're going to become a great nation. And they wake up 400 years later, and there's thousands of them. They've had all these kids. So all of that stuff they had been told third hand was actually happening. So, so they had this kind of faith. They were blessed. They were this thriving community. But by the time we get where we are today, 400 years down the road, things are changing. Along comes Pharaoh, this king of Egypt, who decides to enslave the Israelites. And, he, and then, when that doesn't get him what he needs politically, he initiates a state-sponsored genocide. And so what we're told in chapter 6, verse 9, is that that suffering... And that trauma, it overwhelmed, get this, their ability to believe. It scrambled their capacity for belief. There, look, there are many paths to unbelief. There are many ways to lose your religion. There are many ways to leave the path of faith. 
But the way Israel has lost their faith, it is the path where the deep effects of grief, of horrendous evil, of real suffering overwhelms your ability to believe. This is where unbelief happens to you. This is not where you go to unbelief. This is where it comes to you and you have no control over it. And in this situation, their doubt is clearly not because they've sinned. It's because sin has been done to them. It's because of their experience of horrendous evil, the kind that just hits you in wave, the, the kind of evil that dehumanizes you and breaks your will and degrades you and disorients you and deprives you of the ability to think straight, not only about stuff you are seeing and experiencing firsthand, but also about things like faith. This is the kind of darkness that snuffs out the light. And so by the time we get to Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, Israel has become deeply skeptical of believing in the thing that their parents and grandparents told them about God. And at this point in the story, the Israelites are in a place where the only way they can recover faith, the only way, is if God pours out an abundance of grace that not only heals their hearts, but reorients their minds. The only way back to faith here is through not only care, but a healing that helps their minds recover a capacity for belief. And the way that happens in the book of Exodus, the way God says he's going to do that, is a long journey. And it's a journey that requires a firsthand encounter with God. It's clear in chapter 4, listening to Moses talk about God is enough for them to believe in worship. Then this trauma and hearing is no longer enough. They've got to experience God firsthand for themselves. Because there are moments when you, you've had friends in such deep grief that the common sense wisdom that you offer them cannot break through. There are moments when grief scrambles our minds. There are moments when suffering makes things that normally bring comfort to you that it can't get through. Now, is that because the thing that normally brings comfort to you is not really true? No, it's because of the intellectual scrambling that occurs with deep trauma. And in those kind of situations, secondhand accounts don't work. In those kind of moments, it's a firsthand experience that's required. So God, what they need is to encounter God for themselves. They need to hear God speaking to them personally. They need, to, they need God to confirm his promises with his providence and with miracles. Look at the end of Exodus chapter 4. The people of Israel listened to Moses' speech and believed. But in chapter 6, because of their suffering, his speech an even better speech than the first one doesn't get through. 
And in that situation, their doubt is not sin. Their disbelief is not sin. Their skepticism is not sin. This is what happens when deep suffering overwhelms our our good but fragile capacities for figuring out the truth. God really did appear to Abraham. He really did appear to Isaac and to Jacob and their forefathers. And he really did speak to them. Those stories were not make-believe. But trauma can do these things to our brain where our normal capacities for figuring things out are all messed up. And the path to faith requires a firsthand encounter with God. And that's what God told Moses at the beginning of chapter 6. Notice, the beginning of chapter 6, God says to Moses, it's it's interesting, in in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, after everything's blown up and nobody's believing anymore, the Lord said to Moses, now you'll see what I will do. God, God wasn't intimidated by this place they were in. And he says to Moses, look, here's what I'm gonna do. Look down at verse six. Say to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And here's the center of it all. And you will know that I'm the Lord, your God. How are they gonna get to know that? When they experience God. See, they're in this place. Well, that's the only thing that's going to lead them to know God. And so God says, that's what I'm going to do. God is going to deliver Israel for himself, and they are going to know him. He's not scared by the fact that they've, been, that they've suffered into unbelief. And here's how he's going to heal it. Now, for that to happen, for Israel to move from doubt to, and despair to faith and joy from unbelief to belief, from skepticism to deep commitment, which is where they get to by the end of the book. But between here and the end of the book, what happens is critical to that journey. And it's their own encounter with God. They hear God for themselves, and God confirms his love for them through miracles and providence. Now look, let me stop here. If you are losing your faith, It is so painful. It's it's devastating. And if you're going through this, the first thing I want to say to you is I'm so sorry. (laughs) If you have ever gone through this or if you've ever watched a loved one go through this, it's devastating. And I'm sorry. And the second thing I want to say to you is this. If you have been broken into unbelief, if you have been crushed into despair, you need to talk about it to somebody. And I would love to talk with you or Keith, or please be in a small group and tell your small group, the last thing to do is to be crushed into unbelief and to keep it to yourself. That, that, that will not be a good place to go. And, and listen, The response to this kind of unbelief in the book of Exodus is to wait. Because you can't get yourself out of this. The only way out of this 
is for God to give you a firsthand encounter. For God to speak to you. And so if you're in this kind of unbelief, please don't leave the church. Stay in the church with your unbelief, with your doubt, with your skepticism. Stay in the church, stay with God's people and wait, wait patiently. Because this is what he said to Israel, not just listen to Moses and you'll be okay. He didn't say to them, why don't you just believe? He said, here's what's gotta happen. I've gotta deliver you and that's gonna happen. And I've gotta do these things before you can know me as your God. So if you're here, I encourage you to wait. Bring other people into what you're going through and let them pray for you if you can't pray anymore. And let them pray and ask God to give you a firsthand encounter with himself, to speak to you himself, and to confirm that he's really exists with miracles and with providence. Now, like I said earlier, there are many paths to belief and there are many paths to unbelief and Israel's path, the path of trauma to unbelief, that's just one journey. And it's a journey that some of you are going through right now. But there's another story of unbelief in this passage. It's Pharaoh's. And his path to unbelief is very different. Wicked old Pharaoh. Let's look at how he gets to where he, can, he does not believe in God. Now, first of all, remember in the book of Exodus, when it opens up, there's Pharaoh, and he's got some problems, two basic problems. Number one, he's got the difficulty of the long-term effects of an immigrant population that is growing steadily. And this morphs into a problem for Pharaoh's Department of Defense and Department of Foreign Affairs. How can they preempt the potential action of a fifth column if a neighbor attacks them. This is clearly a, an issue that Pharaoh and his ministries of defense and foreign affairs are debating. And so Pharaoh's initial solution to that is an age-old solution that's been repeated by lots of despotic rulers over the course of time. His initial response is slavery. He's going to enslave this huge immigrant population so that if they end up in a war, there's not a fifth column fighting against them from the inside. Well, that doesn't work. And so he moves to a second policy of dictators over time. He moves to a policy of ethnic cleansing and ethnic extermination. And that failed. And it was really stupid of Pharaoh. I mean, dumb. Because if he succeeded, he would have eliminated a large section of his labor force. Now, that was his first problem. He had this political problem. But he also had a religious problem. You see, when Moses shows up to Pharaoh, Moses says, there's a new God in Egypt. And this God requires you, a God of Egypt, to do what he says this God of the Hebrews. Now notice what it said, what Daniel read this and he giggled after he read it. Exodus chapter five, verse two. Pharaoh's response to the new God in town, who is Yahweh? Your Bible says the Lord, it's actually the name of, of the Hebrew God. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know him and I'm not letting Israel go. That's kind of a paraphrase. Now listen, I don't know this God, disbelief. 
But it's a different kind of disbelief than Israel's disbelief. Pharaoh's lack of belief is not because of suffering. Not at all. Pharaoh's lack of belief is because he's stubborn. It's because he's addicted to his own economic and political interest. He refuses to consider any evidence that Yahweh exists. He's closed-minded. He's dogmatic. He's a fundamentalist. He's irrational. And as we read through Exodus, we'll see that there are these moments where he backs off of his stubbornness and he turns in belief to God, but they're very short-lived. And in the end, as you keep reading through Exodus, God gives Pharaoh what Pharaoh wants. And God even hands him a shovel and helps him dig the hole deeper for himself. You see, Pharaoh's unbelief is not rooted in trauma or suffering. It's rooted in his political and personal self-interest and, and with his foolishness and his pride and his closed-mindedness and his irrational, emotional waffling back and forth. And God's judgment on Pharaoh's unbelief is he gives him even more unbelief. You see, God is not a teddy bear God. He will use your rebellion to further his own ends. And in this case, it's to show Pharaoh that God is God, not Pharaoh. The Lord does not shuffle off the scene of human history just because some important public figure decides that he's not kosher anymore. And very often, the judgment on sin, on your sin and my sin, is to let us get more of it, to let us sin more. The judgment of this kind of unbelief is more unbelief. Now, remember I said, look, if you're in an unbelief caused by trauma, the key move is to wait patiently. You can't fix your brain. You can't will yourself to believe. If your unbelief is rooted in this kind of pride? The answer is to repent. If you think that you're more like Pharaoh than like the Israelites, then I want to say to you the same thing I said earlier. Talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to Keith. One of us is very familiar with pride and can help. No, no, I'm joking. If you're in a place of unbelief, it could be because of your pride, and you need to lower your pride, and you need to open your mind and repent and take the risky step of turning in faith to the only God who's truly God. It could be that you don't believe Rod Dreher, who's a columnist, um, I think, with New He said, I read him once, he said that, um, yeah, he was an atheist in his 20s because he wanted to sleep around a lot. There is a way to believe that's just a battle of pride with God. And the way out of that is repentance. All right, so the Bible gives us this picture in, in Exodus chapters 4 and 5 and 6 of these two kind of, kinds of, of doubt and skepticism. Now, the Bible gives us lots of these pictures, and there's more than these two. It's not just these two. I want to bring up one more that's not here in Exodus. It's the... It's the 
the, the struggle to believe that we find in the book of Job and in our own lifetimes in the life of Mother Teresa. Let me tell you her story. It's, it's a different struggle with belief. As a young child, Mother Teresa was captivated by the love of Jesus and her neighbor. I mean, when you read her diaries, it's like she never remembers a day where she didn't love Jesus. And on her first communion at five and a half years old, she felt overwhelmed with a love for Jesus and a, and a love for her neighbors. And over the course of her teenage years, it grew. And her love for God and her sense of God's nearness all through childhood and adolescence, it grew. And she began to discern as a teenager that God was calling her to be a nun. And she loved it. And she ran toward it. And she, and, and, and she lived this life until she got about 32 years old. And when Mother Teresa was 32 years old, she made a deep commitment to Jesus after her annual retreat. Every year, her group of nuns, each nun would go away on a retreat. And after her annual retreat, when she was 32, she came back and she made this deep commitment to Jesus in a conversation with her spiritual director. She made this vow, quote, to give God anything he may ask of me, to refuse him nothing. And she didn't just pray this one day. She went to her spiritual director and she made it a vow. Four years later, when she was 36 years old, by the way, this was 75 years ago on September the 10th, 1946. Mother Teresa was riding on a train from Calcutta to Darjeeling. And during this trip, she, quote, came to realize that Jesus was calling me to serve him radically in the poorest of the poor. Now, what she didn't talk about and what never came out until she died in her diaries and her letters, which she had asked to be destroyed, but who would destroy them, right? Sorry, you're dead. Um, ooh, let's read this stuff. Suddenly, in her letters to her spiritual director, her confessor, and her archbishop, we found the real story about that train trip. She didn't just have this kind of inner prompting that Jesus was calling her to serve the poor. It was a vision. And she heard the audible voice of God. And Jesus asked her on this train ride, quote, this is in her diary, will you not help? And Mother Teresa responded, how can I? And then she expressed her fear of being ridiculed, her fear of being lonely, her fear of like living so poor that she couldn't meet her basic needs, her fear that she would fail and she would have to leave her happy life as a nun, her fear of exchanging her habit, her outfit that she loved wearing for the rough sari of the poor of Calcutta, and her fear that this life Jesus was calling her to was too demanding. Repeatedly to all of these fears, there was this dialogue she had with Jesus where Jesus said, will you refuse me? You made yourself my spouse for my love. Quote, you can go to India for me. The thirst you have for souls brought you this far are you afraid now to take one more step for your spouse, for me, for souls? And again, 
Jesus said to her, I want Indian nuns, missionaries of charity, who will be my fire of love amongst the poor, the sick, the dying, and the little children. Now, by the way, throughout Mother Teresa's life, she was absolutely clear on this. The chief motivation for her work and her group called the Missionaries of Charity, their chief motivation, she frequently said this, was not social work. It was to adore Christ in the littlest and weakest of his children and to bring to Christ the souls that he thirsted for. So throughout the rest of that year, 1946 and then 1947, some of you remember that. Throughout the rest of that year and the next, Mother Teresa had these profound experiences with Jesus. And so she obeyed. She went into the slums of Calcutta and she began her work among the destitute and the dying and the visions and the conversations from Jesus stopped for 50 years. The whole rest of her life, they stopped. And this is what the world didn't know. The world didn't know that for 50 years, all right. The world, it's, it's this remarkable thing that she persisted for year after year, decade after decade in this incredible ministry. And you, and you would have thought that this incredible, invincible faith she had and this love that radiated from her must have come from an intimate experience and relationship with Jesus but in her letters to her spiritual director and her confessor and her archbishop, what she was experiencing for 50 years was a feeling of doubt and loneliness and that God had abandoned her. To Mother Teresa, God seemed absent, heaven was empty, and she said, bitterest of all, it felt as if her own suffering didn't count for anything. Quote, all she experienced was that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of not God not being God, of God not even really existing. You know, when, when you think about Mother Teresa and her remarkable life and her inspiring work and her example of throwing her lot in with the poorest of the poor and sharing their meager diet and their clothing and wiping leprous sores and enduring all the agonies of the dying, when we think about her doing that for so many years and decades upon decades, we want and we need her to have been in constant union with God, to be some God-intoxicated saint because that lets us off the hook. Us ordinary worldlings. How else could this unremarkable woman, no different from the rest of us, have lived such an extraordinary life? And yet when you read her diaries and her letters to her spiritual director and her archbishop, you have her testimony that what made her work possible was not an experience with Jesus. But it was the objective fact that God loved her, that Jesus died for her. Now, what am I saying? 
Um, look, Mother Teresa survived a dark night of the soul that lasted 50 years. I, I don't know any other account, account of such a long dark night of the soul in, in, in history. I've never read of one. You know how she survived it? She said that she learned to deal with her trial of faith, the absence of God, by converting her feeling of being abandoned by God into an act of abandonment to God. She decided that God abandoning her and her senses would be her Gethsemane. And that she was participating in Jesus's own sufferings on the cross of feeling the abandonment of God. And she said that her sense of being abandoned by God gave her the deepest access to the deepest poverty of the modern world, loneliness. So three kinds of struggles with faith. Israel's traumatized into it. Pharaoh's obstinate pride, stubborn, selfishness taking you into it and mother Teresa's where it's God inflicted if you're in this traumatized struggle with faith wait patiently if you have sinned your way into disbelief repent if you're in a dark night of the soul where all of your senses are telling you God has abandoned you, another move is required. And this is that. You move forward with faith and faithfulness. Faith that what you're going through in your sense of God's abandonment is not a free fall, it's a purification. That act of faith is the key to the dark night of the soul. That what you're going through is not a free fall into despair and doubt. It is a purification. And your senses are denying you that, but in faith you know that. You believe that. You trust that. And secondly, faithfulness. Be faithful in small things as well as the big and be faithful to your vows to King Jesus that you will love him and you will be loyal to him no matter what. Let's pray.